0: The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. The Dog Tag Podcast may at times cover sensitive topics including, but not limited to, suicide, abuse, violence, severe mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol addiction. You are advised to refrain from watching or listening to the Dog Tag Podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, host, director, or guests shall at any time be liable for the content covered causing offense, distress, or other reaction. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. Joe Rombolo's Medicare Made Easy works hard for our veterans. Did you know you may be eligible to enroll in a Medicare plan and keep your VA health and life benefits? We can offer a Medicare Advantage plan specifically designed for veterans and spouses who are entitled to VA health benefits. CHAMP VA or TRICARE for Life may offer benefits you might otherwise not receive. We can find a plan that best suits your needs. Call Joe at 314-753-0792. That's 314-753-0792. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. Today in studio we have Paul Bud Haddocky. Jim go ahead and kick us off.
1: Well Paul welcome to the and I call you Bud more often than I call you Bud uh, Paul by the way but welcome to the Veterans Museum and uh, you know we, we've gotten to know each other a little bit over time but I want to kind of start with, uh, you're, what, 16 years old when Pearl Harbor was bombed.
2: Absolutely.
1: Describe what you felt, what your parents were experiencing. Describe that day when you heard about Pearl Harbor being bombed.
2: It uh, was a Sunday afternoon after church. And uh, I was sitting in a mall shop with a buddy of mine. And uh, over the radio franklin delano roosevelt told us about pearl harbor we were both 16 and uh i remember so well saying we're too young it'll all be over before we get a chance to go little did i know those two years went by quick but uh the funny thing about it was uh my good friend, he was my best man at our wedding. Uh, he had a heart murmur, and he died a few years ago at 88 with a heart murmur.
0: Mm.
1: So did you have a number of friends that were kind of chomping at the bit to join? Then,
2: At that time, it's funny you ask that. I was talking to somebody yesterday, said patriotism at that time will probably never, ever be as high in America again. And I hope not, because our country was attacked, as you mentioned, by Pearl Harbor. Guys lied about their age to get in. And there were guys in at 16 years old. That's kind of hard to believe. I flew all my missions at 19, and I was back home at 20. So were you actually drafted or did you enlist? I was drafted. I wanted to enlist as just about everybody did, and my dad would not let me. Uh, I can understand that now having a son that went to Vietnam. But the funny part is if I would have enlisted, you got a 90-day deferment, and I would have gone in in September. By being drafted, I was in camp, a very familiar place, Jefferson Barracks, Missouri, on July 19th. I used to tell my dad years, years later, I knew you never really loved me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, so you're, you you were drafted and they assigned you to the Army Air Corps then?
2: Yes, at uh, Camp Grant, Illinois. Uh, named after uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, they A lot of this, you know, it wasn't yesterday. It was 79 years ago. But uh, they came out and said, anybody interested in the United States Army Air Force? And not everybody, but some of us did. And then we were taken to a different room or whatever, and then decided, as you know or don't know, the Air Force at that time was part of the Army. It became a separate entity, I think, somewhere around 46, 47. And you have the uh, Air Force Academy now in uh, Colorado Springs. So somewhere along the way in your basic training, somebody
1: decided you were going to be a bombardier.
2: Yeah, uh, it was like uh, filling glasses with water, uh, quotas. I wanted to be a fighter pilot so bad. Every kid did, every kid. And uh, they didn't need any more at that moment, but they needed bomber crew members. And uh, long about the end of forty four the powers to be eisenhower churchill etc decided to do away with precision bombing meaning the arch in st louis the empire state building and we went to saturation type so then i was schooled in the equipment uh, of dropping bombs other than the norden bomb site And what we did was dropped on the lead ship. Now, I don't mean on it, but when he opened his doors, we would open ours. And when his first bombs came out, ours did. And uh, it wasn't nice. We killed thousands and thousands of people, but we knocked out electricity, water, everything. If you read history... The war ended, uh, they say, about a year earlier due to the 8th Air Force. We leveled Germany.
0: Well, Bud, tell us a little bit about the B-17, the flying machine you were on, and kind of what you did or where you were at in the plane.
2: I flew up in the uh, plexiglass nose, way up in the front, with the navigator. In fact, I told Jim one of the first times I came here, I got lost And I said, it's a good thing, Jim. I wasn't a navigator. I probably would have ended up bombing Chicago. (laughs) But uh, I flew there. The navigator flew with me. Then you crawled down and up, and there was the pilot and co-pilot. Behind them was the flight engineer, very comparable to your uh, uh, commercial airliners today. And he stood more or less right behind the pilot and co-pilot and fired the top turret. Then if you go through the bomb bay, you get to the radio room. And that's where the radio man uh, sat and did his da-da-da-da. Then right down there below him was the ball turret gunner. Now, I flew in there about five times to help the ball turret guy who, believe it or not, had a bad back. Then a little further were the waist gunners. And then all the way back was the tail gunner. But the tail gunner and the uh, ball turret gunner never took off before you got airborne. They went back in their positions after you got up in the air.
1: So... You've got a crew of about how many? Is it
2: 10? Normally 10. We had nine. We had one waste gunner. I really don't know why, other than we were known as a replacement crew. That means for a crew that got killed. And they might have been running out of men. Uh, I, I don't really know, but we had a waste gunner that would go from left to right.
1: So, I can't resist asking this question. The B-24 guys say that that was the best plane. The B-17 guys say that was the best plane.
2: Well, all you got to do is read history. All you got to do is read uh, manufacturing. All you got to do is read what the uh, guys that designed the plane said. They called the B-24 the flying coffin. (laughs) I didn't make that up. I saw B-24s with their tail sections get hit and go down immediately. The B-17, I don't know who did it, was named the Flying Fortress. Very well named. There were B-17s that came back with 60, 70, 100 holes, and they still made it home. We had holes in probably... I'm somewhere around 50% of our missions. And the most we ever had, I think, were about 30. So on a typical mission, how fast was your B-17 flying? One of the questions I ask of children and people in schools, how fast do you think we flew? And people today grew up in the jet age, 200, 300. I said, not close. With a load of bombs, we flew at 155. Once we got rid of the bombs, we could hit 180 to 200 maybe.
1: So that's kind of the uh, the speed limit. Oh, there is no speed limit on the <laughs> Autobahn in Germany, so you were <laughs> flying as fast as they were probably driving.
2: Yeah, but you got to remember it was a long time ago too. True. Uh, the only jets uh, that were known – or that were operable, were the German ME-262s that attacked my group.
1: You actually saw one of the 262s attack your group, did you?
2: On our uh, 14th mission. 14th mission. Yeah, they got the guy on our right wing. God just blessed our crew. Uh, they got a direct hit. I didn't see it because you got to visualize. I'm up in the nose, and he was flying back. The tail gunner saw it, and they got a direct hit, and they were on fire, and the same famous words, get out of there, get out. Too late, they blew up. But they could only stay up on one pass. you got to remember, we, America, we only had blueprints. We didn't have any operable jets yet.
0: Well, you mentioned how slow, well, slower than a jet today because of the bombs how many bombs were you guys carrying at one time
2: varied by weight okay we carried 100 pound bombs 250 pound 500 pound and 1000 pound we would never ever mix them now this is one of the famous questions i ask kids in school if today's mission called for 40 100-pound bombs. This is just fictional. How many 1,000-pound bombs tomorrow for the same weight would we carry? And the kids sit there, and they start thinking, and somebody says, four. And I say, teacher, give them an A. <laughs> so the, uh, <clears throat> you're uh, 19 years
1: old now, and you're ready to fly your first mission, and that mission was certainly not routine. Um, I think the story you tell us, you were, as the new guys, you were put in a position they called Tail End Charlie, right? Right. And you took some – you, you the ship was shot down. You had to crash land. Can you tell us about that experience?
2: Okay. We went to HAM, H-A-M-M, Germany, which just recently – Somebody put up on their uh, smartphone when I went to Europe here two weeks ago, because I'll get to that in a minute, but uh, we were hit. Now, there is a high group, a medium group, and a low group, and we flew in the low group. And by that time, the Germans got pretty accurate. I mean, sometimes they got lucky and had a direct hit on a plane with the bombs in them and that was goodbye but we got hit we had over 20 holes in the plane number one number two engine were on fire and uh i i, I can't remember everything but i'm sure we put them out and we had an experienced guy with us i'm not too sure of that either Whether they did that with every new crew, thank God they did. The pilot said, get ready to bail out. And the first one at the door, I always said I would never, never bail out. I was the first one at the door. When it's your life, it's something different. But they changed their order. We didn't bail out. The guy asked the pilot, how much fuel do you have? where are the enemy lines because at that time the germans were retreating quite rapidly and they kind of guessed the rhine river and we made it across and we didn't go straight down but we went down on an angle till we ran out of fuel and crashed on a field in st troiden belgium and then went out in the field because a fighter base has a much shorter runway than a bomber base. And uh, I'm very happy to say that two weeks ago I was in St. Troyden where I crashed. I didn't remember anything, but I got a piece of the runway at home. <laughs> so- and uh, uh, it was very emotional.
1: So this is in nineteen forty four. What month? Forty
2: five. Forty five. February sixteenth, nineteen forty five, eight thirty two in the morning. <laughs> I don't. <know>.
0: Yeah. <laughs> how long were you guys flying before you you had to crash land? Do you remember how long that was?
2: Before we went on
0: combat. No. Before during that mission, so you crashed at eight thirty two. What? How long had no. you guys been flying before you you
2: actually crashed? The, the eight thirty two was fictional. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, our missions were 8, 10, sometimes 12 hours. Oh, okay. Half that time, we would be on oxygen. What uh, people don't know or realize is that taking off, you just didn't take off. You took off and then formed. And if that day had called for 700 planes over Frankfurt, Your group only put up about 40, so you're looking at 12 to 15 groups. The 8th Air Force had 40 groups stationed in East Anglia, England, about 150 miles north of London. And I would say to answer your question, we were probably in the air five hours at least, but then we were on the bomb run, and that's when we got hit. Gotcha.
1: So that had to be a little, uh, you're, again, you're 19 years old, you're on your very first mission, and you hear these things hitting this
2: ship. This, this ship made a tin, That had to have been very scary. Yeah, it, uh, if I may, when flak hits, and flak is German 88-millimeter cannon shells. And the part that comes out is about yay big. And it disintegrates into 113 pieces, 250. There is no rhyme or reason. But uh, when it hits the plane, it sounds very similar to when you drive your car over a gravel road. You know, when the gravel hits the under part of the car. But if you ever meet anybody, and I hope you do soon, there aren't too many of us left, that says he wasn't scared, you can tell him he was a lousy liar. <laughs> I was scared every time. So you had you encountered on your missions flak or planes or both very often. We, uh, at that time, the fighter attacking was not – Anywhere near what it was in forty four? Why? We had decimated most of the German fighters. And Hitler, screwy Hitler, was putting up, I know you won't believe this, 15 to 16-year-old kids flying Messerschmitts. They didn't know what they were doing. You talk to a P-51 pilot from that time, he'll tell you it was a turkey shoot, meaning they... Blasted them out of the air. Early on in the
1: war, for a, a number of reasons, you know, you mentioned fighter escorts. We didn't have the fighter escorts early in the war. You were flying a much greater distance. The fly, fighters couldn't stay with you that long. And the mortality rate for aircrew was like nearly 70%, if I'm not mistaken.
2: You're right, but you're wrong. <laughs> At the beginning, the missions were much shorter. Because Germany had all of France, all of Belgium, all of the Netherlands. And where we were stationed, we were very close to the North Sea or the English Channel. And once you got across there back in 43 and 44, I'm not diminishing it because it was very, very dangerous. But when we flew, Berlin was about 800 to 900 miles from our air base. We had to go way into Germany. That's why our missions were so long. However, the fighter opposition, I would say, was at least 50% less. But what people don't know is German 88-millimeter cannons shot down more American bombers than german fighters and you couldn't fire back at german cannons
0: so bud you you guys probably didn't really know how long the war would last when you were there um so with that being said were you in for the duration how many missions did you have to fly before you were able to come home
2: well when i went it was 25 and then they increased it to 35 now i'm not too sure if some honcho increased it to 35 because he thought it wasn't as dangerous because I met a guy when Ma- Muriel and I went to England in 84 that flew what I did, and he flew a half a mission, meaning he got to the target, was shot down, and was a prisoner of war for the rest of the war.
1: The, uh, the other thing you hear about when you talk about aircrew guys in World War II you know, they, you had led a little bit of a different life in the fact that when you came back, you got a hot meal, you got a nice bed to sleep in, and, you know, it was, it was a very comfortable environment, but it was a very comfortable environment until you had the terror of flying in that plane and people shooting with you. So you went from a very good uh, life of sorts while you were deployed to a very terrifying life, so that had to have been very difficult in a way, very different, you know, for the troops on the ground.
2: No, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> what was the guy's name on 2020? He always closed the show. He was a short guy. Um, oh, I forget his name. Well-known. He was a war sco- correspondent, and he tells the story, it could be fictional, of sitting in an English pub, and there's a and I'm not picking on him an infantry man in there having a beer and in walks an air force guy and he says oh you air boys you got it made he said i wish i were an boy he said what do you exactly do well he said we fly up at 25000 feet about 5 miles we have to be careful of collisions in the air we can't touch the guns with our hands, we'll get frostbite. Many guys had their fingers amputated. Uh, we have anoxia when your oxygen tank gets hit and you go to sleep. You got the plane that gets hit pretty bad. And then you got to figure, how do I get down from five miles up? Infantry guy says, forget it, I'll stay where I'm at. <laughs> but no matter who it was, And I want this known to anybody, who infantry, whatever, it was dangerous. Those people were putting their lives on the line. And in the 8th Air Force, about 28,000 guys didn't come home. And that's why I wrote the song I wrote, Jim. And then you touched on it, but, you know,
1: being in the air force, there, you know, I mean, it was dangerous from without ever getting over and en- the enemy. Um, you guys flew in close formations. Um, the worry about oxygen, your your mask freezing, your your parts of your body freezing. Um, so there's many many things that were dangerous. You're flying in a formation before you ever start heading out to your target, and things happen, don't they?
2: Oh. Many, many guys, we missed a plane by about 50 feet. That's pretty close. One of my (coughs) jobs up in the nose, because the weather in England was really crummy in the winter and a lot of clouds, and uh, they always wanted the formation to be tight, tight. I could hear the commander. He'd fly as far as the English Channel and then say, Good luck and good hunting and goodbye. And he'd say, get it tighter. Get Why? So the fighters could not come in between the formation. But there were guys that got too close. And when that happened, <coughs> pardon me, they hit and went down. And uh, the other side of the coin, though, men, can you imagine being in Dresden, Berlin, Munich and 800 planes coming over taking a half hour to 45 minutes till they were all gone all of them dropping bombs
0: That's scary. And this the sound of all the planes and oh. the bombs hitting. And they're
2: human beings. I mean they were the enemy then but uh, it's it must have been terrible.
1: Well, the other thing we hear, we, we we're fortunate to have a number of stories of Army Air Corps uh, crewmen here in the museum, and to be shot down over France is one thing, but if you're a bomber crew to be shot down over Germany, they didn't like you very much, did they?
2: Uh, I wasn't, thank God, but the stories that I got, they treated Arab guys pretty good compared to i i think uh air force was held in high esteem germany america anywhere now that doesn't mean they weren't in a, a stolic luft a camp uh in fact i told you i was in buchenwald here two weeks ago but uh, uh eating you are absolutely right you uh referred to that, give you an idea. It was cafeteria style, and when we had breakfast, the cooks would pile it on the tray. I can hear it. Come on, have some more. It's probably your last meal. Really nice guys.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we've got stories where if you had to bail out over Germany and you were a bomber crew, They're pretty upset at you anyway. You're dropping bombs on their homes. Oh,
2: absolutely. We had in our newsletter a couple years ago, a guy, they went down and they bailed out and uh, came down in a little town. And they were all pitchforked to death. But one guy was alive, and this is true, they took him by wheelbarrows, dumped him out of town, this guy was rescued by the Allies, and after the war, they went back to that town and tried those people. Now, why? When a Messerschmitt went down over England, they took him and put him in jail. They didn't kill him. But I'm not saying every German did that. It's just maybe like comparing the regular German army to the SS a big difference so you you likely lost some friends along the way I yes but not too close Jim I uh, as you know me now I'm somewhat of an extrovert but I was an introvert at that time I was a loner uh, I knew of Cruz when I heard Joe Jones died or whoever but I didn't know him intimately. Example, I went to London three times, I believe. I went alone. I uh, wanted to see history. And uh, and the best thing, though, in a Quonset hut, it held two crews. And you tried really not to get too close just for that reason because uh, it's no different on earth in our life. When you lose a loved one, the sting is there for quite a while.
0: Well, Bud, you know, the mortality rate uh, for air crews was very high earlier in the war, like you alluded to earlier. And with new fighters and escorts, missions got a little bit easier later in the war. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. There were 12,741 B-17s manufactured by America. I would guess... The last couple of hundred never got over. We kept, America kept, producing right to the last minute. But there were over 5,000 B-17s shot down. That's a 40% casualty rate. That means 4 out of 10. That's pretty high. So, Bud, how did you stay in touch with your family when you were over there? Did you write a lot of letters? When I got home... Uh, home. When I got back from a mission, of course, we went to briefing. What did you see? Did uh, You know, questions. Then we'd clean up, have dinner, and I'd go to a Red Cross club. I tried to write home every day. I was very, very homesick. And uh, the English people were very nice, very nice. But, uh, that was my out. Uh, they, example, when you came back, uh, the Re- Red Cross would give you a shot of booze. I didn't drink, so the crew would uh, gamble for my shot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so was the Red Cross Club on the base that you were at? Was it outside of the base? To, gonna give uh, No, us a-
2: this place where I went, uh, I can't tell you really. I, I'm going to guess it was probably somewhere on the base.
0: And did you guys have freedom to move around? Oh, out? yeah.
2: Well, we weren't restricted. Uh, they had a place where you could go drink and stuff at night. I didn't go there because I didn't drink until I got shot down. Uh, but they had an like an egg timer, and it had a red ball on the top and a white ball on the bottom. And if they had it turned with a white ball, it meant you didn't fly tomorrow, and that's when they poured it in, <laughs> I guess. But uh, I flew five missions in a row. My log will show you that. And they may not sound like a lot, but it was a lot. Because you get up at 2 or 3, um, take ice-cold shower if you want, go eat breakfast, go to briefing, they tell you where you're going, load the fifty caliber machine guns, and then sit and wait for the red flare, which means takeoff. And just like a airport in St. Louis, sometimes the planes are lined up, only in the war they were really lined up.
0: The only visual that I can see is from the movies that I've watched in a briefing room where you're looking at a big map on a wall and model planes and and a guy up there telling you where you're going to go, is that the way it really happened? Exactly. You would sit there.
2: Now, they would have separate briefings, if I recall, for navigators because they had, you know, different things to do. But we'd sit there in a classroom-like, no different than here in the museum, and they'd have a curtain, and the curtain will open up, And the colonel or whoever it was up there with his wand, the mission for today is Berlin. And you'd hear, "Uh, ah, no, or Dendenhausen. Oh, where's Dendenhausen? But that's exactly how. Well, Bud, you, uh, obviously, your very first mission was very frightening.
1: Did you have other missions that stand out in your mind as being extremely difficult?
2: Yeah, uh, Berlin, the lead ship screwed up, pardon the word, uh, when we were going to go on the IP, the bomb run. So we had to go around Berlin twice. Wow. That's like asking for trouble. And that scared the out of me. <laughs> and, uh, uh Number 14 to, uh, Swicka, C-E-W-I-C-A, I think. Germany, kind of a suburb of Dresden when we were attacked by the ME262 jet. Uh, Munich, young kid from Chicago, and nose. there's the Swiss Alps. Oh my gosh, I was so impressed, but, uh, there were a few missions. I swear we had spies over there because they would say at briefing, and you should encounter very heavy flack and accurate, or you should encounter very little flack. Now, on a clear day like today here, and you see contrails on airplanes? Well, can you imagine two, three hundred with contrails The Germans knew we were coming 50 miles out, and they were ready. Sometimes they'd move in 88s overnight. Uh, How on the uh, cold blue, I believe, Jim, uh, it states in there, the lady, the propaganda lady, she knew where the guys were going before they did. Now, how did that happen? But... uh, there was a lot of uh, espionage, I'm sure. Bud, you're referring to
1: uh, the DVD, The Cold Blue, right? HBO. Yes, and it's um, kind of a it's it's footage, actual footage from Memphis, cameraman
2: Memphis Bell
1: that flew on the ship and and recorded the whole incident. And you're featured in that DVD, right?
2: Yes, I am. You, you actually get a chance to sing at the end. And at the end, I show all my equipment, if you recall. In fact, I was fortunate. Uh, I hit Chicago in August. I was kept over there three months longer after when the Germans surrendered. Somebody had to stay until they got rid of all the airplanes. But when I got to Union Station, the war's over. There was no MPs, nothing. And I got on the phone, and I called my dad. And he said, you're home. I said, not yet, Pop. But I said, come on down. We we're about a half hour. Come down right now. Bring some paper bags. And I opened my flight bag, and I gave him everything. May West helmet, throat mic, oxygen mask, uh, everything. Since that time, I've had so many people want to buy it. You won't find hardly anybody, but on the cold blue... The producer, Eric, you don't see him, but after I get done showing it, you recall, Jim. And he says, and Bud, uh, the government's still looking for you, aren't they? (laughs) And um, my answer was, come and get me, baby. (laughs) And that's your first recorded incident of thievery from the U.S. government, right? (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah right <laughs> well the uh it, it is an amazing video of uh, the hbo the cold blue and it does feature another local man from the area here glenn harrison who was a co-pilot on a 17 unfortunately we lost glenn about a little over a year ago at 102 yeah but it it does it does do a pretty accurate portrayal of what it was like doesn't it
2: what i like about it oh by the way it's making its rounds in europe now people told me when I was there. And, uh, you know, it's so hard for me at my age, uh, technology today. I was signing autographs like crazy and they're bringing pictures of me. I said, where did you get it? On the internet. The world is so small today. It's unbelievable. But, uh, Uh, If anybody wants to get a kind of a good idea, conception of a mission, you can get it on the cold blue.
1: And actually, I've heard that a number of the cameramen were actually
2: killed while videoing the the movie. Absolutely. Uh, What's his name? Uh, mm, Come on. His daughter was with me at the world premiere. He produced uh, Quo Vadis, uh, it doesn't matter. But anyway, he went over there because America was taking a beating, and Roosevelt wanted some pep to inspire. So he sent him over to fly missions to show what our boys are doing. And uh, they took, uh, I don't know, four or five uh, additional cameramen, and one of them or two were on different planes and they were hit and went down, and that was kind of sad. But his daughter, when I was in Dayton for the world co- uh, premiere, she came up on the stage with me, William Wyler, William Wyler. He's well-known, and uh, uh, it was done for, uh, not propaganda, for morale, so America people could see what was going on.
0: So there were only a handful of those photographers, those videographers, embedded in the planes?
2: Uh, As far as I know, they'd put one on each plane. Okay. Because you didn't need two cameras. You needed one. And uh, I believe, uh, you know, there's a fallacy if you watch good old John Wayne or any of the movie stars when they're flying their missions, and then they look out the window— And watch the bombs hit, baloney, because by the time your bomb hits, you're two miles ahead. So
1: you had mentioned earlier that 50% of the time your plane came back with flak holes um, or bullet holes. Did you ever feel like you weren't going to make it? Did, Did that ever creep into your mind?
2: Well, I'll give you an idea. Our flight engineer one morning came out to the plane. Totally smashed. I chewed him out, Jim. I said, what are you doing, Frank? I said, we're a family up there. We have to. He said, what's the difference? We're not going to make it. When I kept the log I gave you, they all poked fun of me. They said, we're not going to make it. When the war ended, they all wanted copies. <laughs> So the war is winding down
1: a little bit. I don't know if you realized it at the time, but how did you feel when
2: you heard that Germany surrendered? Whoopee, whoopee. Now, what the guys did on base, that's kind of funny. Uh, They uh, put uh, haystacks on farmers' fields. They burned them. (laughs) And, you know, what else could they do and celebrate? something else when roosevelt died in april i never saw so many men cry he was a beloved beloved president
1: and i probably should clarify the war in europe ended in may may 8 1945 the war in 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 the pacific would go on august, for another august um, yeah, another couple of months in fact
2: when i got home jim i got a 30 day leave i got home in august and that's when I met Muriel. And uh, my dad had a big party, you know, for his kid. And uh, lo and behold, the Japs surrendered. It's the first time in my life, sorry folks, that I got smashed. Oh boy, I was, did not have to go. I was slated to go to the Pacific. You asked me a question at the beginning. I'm sorry I didn't answer it. We needed 35. I needed 12 more missions. And my dad, if you would have seen him, he couldn't believe, you know, his kids got to go back over there. But when they did, I wanted to go downtown Chicago and celebrate. And I tell my grandkids this, two words that I think are very important in their life, choice and respect. And my dad came out and he said, Bud, Mom and I would be very happy if you didn't go downtown. You know what I could have told him? After coming home from a war, I said, okay, Dad. That's known as respect for your parents. And I see a little less of that today. So, Bud, you're,
1: you're home. Um, I know I know you well enough to know that certainly dropping bombs and knowing you're killing people down there, you know, bothered you. But you ended your time in the Air Force with some humanitarian missions. Can you tell us a little bit about them?
2: Yes. In April of 1945, I would say in the 20s, towards the end, like right now, another week, The Germans totally occupied Amsterdam, The Hague, the Delt. I mean, they just didn't go away. They were there. So the powers to be again said, we have to help them. They're starving at 5,000 a week. The Germans blew up all the dikes. Just poor losers. I don't know how else to say it. So we put plywood floors in the Bombay, and loaded it with K rations. The RAF English called it manna from heaven, biblical. We called it chowhound missions. We dropped 111,000 tons of food to the people of Amsterdam, The Hague, and what? I saw a little boy riding a bike, waving up at us, and he went right into the canal. That's the truth. <laughs> we came in, instead of at 25,000, can you imagine, at 200 feet. Ooh. I mean, it must the noise must have been horrendous. And uh, on the rooftops, they had written in flowers or rocks, God bless you boys. And, Jim, you're so right. When I was sitting in the kitchen with Dad, telling them about my missions and everything. I said, Dad, you have no idea what a beautiful way for me to end the war doing something good instead of killing. And it was maybe just a blessing. You you mentioned one other thing that
1: I I beg to differ with you. You talk about the noise at 200 feet. I say it's a radio engine. It's a sweet, sweet sound.
2: Mm -hmm. To us, it was, yeah. Amen. The, uh, uh, The memories, I guess, are there much more for me because since I retired, I became more active. When I worked, none of my salesmen, believe it or not, didn't even know I flew during the war. And when it came out later, they said, you never told us. I said, we were doing a job for the company. (laughs) But uh, uh, this trip I just took, Jim, as I told you, here in America, people say thank you for your service when they see your cap. In Europe, they say, everybody, thank you for our freedom. Thank you for our liberation and these are young people people 40 or 50 even up to 60 or 70 and uh but you got to remember other than pearl harbor we were not hit they were big difference
1: but when you came back we hear a lot of warriors a lot of soldiers that served and there's a reluctance to talk about their time in the war
2: Uh, I don't really know because I kind of buried it myself, other than mom and dad and my family. But I've heard that. And uh, I really believe this in my heart. I was in sales all my life. I ran sales meetings for 30 years. So that's a lot of experience in speaking. So that didn't hurt. But there were a lot of guys that took it to their grave. I met a lady, and if anybody's listening to this, listen to this. She followed me into a shopping center. She saw the things on the back of my trunk, the 452nd bomb group and all, parked. She said, sir, did you fly during the war? I said, yes, I did. And she said, so did my grandpa. I said, wonderful. I said, where? England. I said, what bomb group? I don't know. What did he do? I don't know. Did he fly? I don't know. And you know what I said? Shame on you. That's exactly what I said. As long as he was living, they should have dug a little deeper. At least it made him feel good. So the other
1: little-known fact is you become somewhat of a celebrity singer. You sing in the the end of the cold blue. There's a song.
2: I I was wondering if you'd sing that for us now. If you want to suffer, I'll gladly do it. I have a little hoarseness, but I'll try. I wrote this in 1995 to the melody of I'll Be Seeing You. I wrote it because my bomb group was having its reunion in my town at that time, Minneapolis, and I wrote it for the 28,000 guys that died. I'll be seeing you on all the missions that we flew and also with our good old crew. The whole day through, enemy fighters and flack, the sound of loud ack-ack, and lucky we got back to our ground crew on that day we flew. I'll be seeing you on all those fields of green in your sleek, Flying machine, oh, the one called Mighty Queen. I'm going to look for you in skies of blue, and when your flights are through, I'll be seeing you in my dreams, and I'll be missing you. Amazing. Well done, sir. Thank you.
1: Just want to kind of mention one last thing before we sign off or hand it back to Jason. Your story is on our website, along with the list of missions, if somebody wants to look at that. Uh, The the shortest address for our website is midamericaveteransmuseum.org, M-A-V-M.org. And you do a search on stories for Bud, and you'll find his whole story there on our website. And I mentioned the cold blue, HBO, D V D, great, and you once again be able to enjoy Bud's uh solo here.
0: Well, Bud, it's been our pleasure to have you in studio with us today and record the history that you have. Uh it, it's been a blessing. Thank and, you. and we're so happy to have had you. We're gonna go ahead and sign off from the Dog Tag Podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The Dog Tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesry at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her.